Hey everybody, it's Joseph Shepard, TV personality and host of Exposed Dragged Out, brought to you by The Dip. It's my new podcast that just started last week where I interview some of the queens that went home a little too early on any franchise of RuPaul's Drag Race. Last week, we had to kick it off with the one and only first out. Victoria Porkchop Parker. If you haven't listened to that, make sure to head over there and listen because it is a great episode. And before we dive into this week's episode, I want to say make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Show me that love there because once you do that, you can head on over to my own YouTube, youtube.com slash Joseph A. Shepard to enter my special giveaway. So rate and review and then head over to figure out the info. Well, this week, let's get into it. We need to go into our drag time machines. We're going back to season seven, the one that a lot of you guys say you do not like that much. But it's time to chat with Tempest DeJour, who just so happened to go home first. We get into all of it from her being a professor, filming the promo after being eliminated, how the show changed her career inside tea, and so much more. So let's get into it, guys. Please welcome Tempest DuJour. Thank you. And thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it very much. I agree with you, Blay, 100%. (laughs) So did so many people. Literally, you have so many fans. And ever since, there have been so many moments where they just come to my videos and they're like, Where's Tempest? Where's Tempest? I want Tempest. And I'm like, okay, cool. Let's get her. And I'm having like a Sally Sally Field, they really like me moment. That's awesome. I appreciate that. That makes me feel good. They like me. They They really really like me. me. Rue doesn't, but everybody (laughs) else does. You, your life is so interesting and so intriguing, like looking into it. You know, you were just talking to me right when you started about like teaching. What do you teach? I'm a tenured professor at University of Arizona. I've been teaching for going on 25 years now. First, I taught at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and now I teach at U of Arizona. Basically, I, I run the costume design program in the School of Theater, Film, and Television. So I'm a costume designer, but I also teach things like history of clothing classes and drawing and painting and rendering and things like uh, mask making, armor making, fabric dyeing and manipulation, sort of related costume stuff. That's actually really cool because like, I think that's one thing, like when you have a a passion and you have that, it's very hard sometimes to be able to make a living off of it and still be creative and get those juices flowing. So that's actually pretty cool to hear that it's like, you're still in the realm that you love. Yeah, you know, I tell people all the time, in fact, I just did a guest lecture at one of the State University of New York schools. And I was telling the students, look, I when I was in high school, the last thing I remember my horrible guidance counselor saying is, what do you want to do when you leave here? And I said, I want to do theater. And she looked at me and she said, what do you really want to do? I mean, it just crushed me. And like thousands of little kids across the world, right, who want to do theater and are convinced that they can't make a career out of it. And if I didn't think that this guidance counselor was dead and buried long ago, I'd hunt her down and say, see, you old hagfish, I did it. Quit destroying the dreams of young people. That's, but I feel like that's what a lot of high school theater teachers do. They destroy your dreams. And 
My theater teacher in high school destroyed my dreams. Her name is Miss Lorraine Cotton. I do not like her. I'm putting that out there. If you're listening, Lorraine Cotton, you destroyed my dreams. How dare you, Lorraine? <laughs> but I mean, look at their perspectives. They're high school theater teachers. So that's not putting them down. My sister is one. But it's just saying that I don't think, maybe they're living in a little bit of regret. I don't know. I mean, I have to imagine every high school theater teacher I've met is sort of a, a broken dream. And that's, again, that sounds terrible. Ugh, it's truth. You have to, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. And luckily I had amazing theater teachers in high school, but who didn't squash our dreams, but it's a tough business. There's no way around it. You teach and then, you know, you make your costumes and stuff. And looking at your life, you, did you grow up in North Carolina? I grew up, uh, I was born in North Carolina and then at 11 moved to Virginia. Then at 12 moved to Saudi Arabia then moved back three years later to Virginia, then went to high school in Florida, then went to first year of college in Idaho. Then I went on my Mormon mission experience to California. Then I went to Brigham Young University for four years in Utah. And then I went to back to North Carolina to do grad school. Then I went to New York City. And then I went to University of North Carolina and then here to Arizona. So what you're telling me right now is that you love staying in the same place and you've been in one place your whole yeah. life, right? I'm from a real stable, <laughs> deeply rooted family. No, the, the great thing though is that we had, uh, this is going to sound so like pretentious, but we had a, a beach house on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And so that was my every summer. I would return there and that was my home and my heaven and my special place. It still is. So What were you doing in Saudi Arabia? I can't talk about it because the government, no, I'm kidding. My dad was the hospital administrator and he dealt in with this international hospital corporation and stuff like that. So blah, blah, blah. But that was like a crazy adventure in my young teens. What was that even like? Because that's totally opposite. It's like living in an Indiana Jones movie or something. It's, I mean, it was incredible. This was back in the late seventies, early eighties. And I mean, Saudi Arabia is still very backwards, but and they don't let Westerners in unless you have a very specific reason. And in fact, the reason we had to leave was because they don't want any Western kids in there over the age of 14, because they fear that will badly influence them and their culture. So you have to leave when you're four, hit 14. And so it was either you send your kids off to boarding school somewhere, which a lot of people did, or you left. And so my mom's like, well, we're not sending you to boarding school. So. And I was like, what? So An all boys school, please? <laughs> but, um, You're like, thank you. Exactly what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. But it was crazy and weird. And like, I mean, the culture there is so remarkably different than anything we know here. And it really influenced me, I think, in so many ways, sexuality wise and, and all mm -hmm. kinds of things, because the Muslim culture in Saudi is crazy with the men. They don't, they basically don't touch the women unless they procreate. So you see men holding hands and kissing and these are like straight men. And, and it's a very like man connected to man culture and society. And that was confusing to me and it seemed normal, but. Your life as a child, you experience things that nobody's gonna even experience in their life. When you were on the show, which we'll talk about in a second, you did end up talking about your weight loss journey. Yeah. How did that end up coming to be like where you decided to go on that journey? Well, I always thought I was like really fat, you know, I'm, <laughs> I mean, typical American, right? We all think we're fat, but I genuinely was fat. But interestingly enough, like I, I remember going to my senior prom and I remember that night and my mom taking pictures of me and my date and thinking, God, I'm so fat. I'm so fat. And recently I saw a picture that, that picture after like 30 years or whatever, I was like, holy shit, you're like skinny. 
And I'm like, what would my 17 year old mind made me think I was so fat? It was, and that's how fucked up we are in America. But as I grew older, I gained more and more weight. And I'm sure that it had to do with me trying to live my perfect Mormon boy life and trying to smash down the fact that I knew I was gay deep inside. And in the Mormon church, it's, I think it's a little rougher than a lot of religions. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a book at the time that equated being homosexual with murder. And, I, and that stuck with me my whole high school years and everything. I'm like, I'm as bad as a murderer. And that kind of guilt and shame, you just start eating your feelings. And I ate them and ate them and ate them and ate them. Mm-hmm. It, it, well into my 20s and even into my 30s, dealing with like that shame and guilt. And, and then when I had this terrible car accident, ironically, that was the trigger that made me want to lose the weight. Really? I was just under 400 pounds at the time of the car accident. And ironically... The doctor told me, if you had not been such a big person, you probably wouldn't have survived the impact of that crash. But because I had so much literal body padding, it helped me survive. But then that triggered me. You know, when you're laying in a hospital bed for six months while your leg grows back together and all your broken bones heal, you have a lot of time to think about what matters most. And my kids were very young at the time. And I thought, God, I need to be around these kids. So, you know, that's it. And I was just I was just commenting to the, my boyfriend the other day. Was, I was carrying in bags of chicken food, chicken feed for my chickens. And they're like 50, <laughs> they're like 50 pound bags. I was carrying one at a time. Stop. You have chickens. How many chickens do you Oh my do you God. Have? Over 20. And <sighs> I, you know, I'm a crazy bird lady, right? Well, yeah. I yeah. just didn't know you had 20 chickens. Yeah. And two ducks. And yeah. So, so, but I was carrying this 50 pound bag of feed. And I said, I cannot believe like how uncomfortable it is to carry this extra 50 pounds. And I was carrying three of those. I lost about three 50 pound bags. And I can't imagine the impact that was having on my organs and my joints and my bones and da da da, but much less psychologically. But anyway, that was the trigger. And it's, you know, it's an everyday, every minute thing. It's, there's no, I get a million DMs and messages from kids and people all over the world about, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? And I'm like, you know what? There's no secret. Even I know many people who've had weight loss surgeries that have gained the weight back or that have done whatever special programs or it's a day by day thing, moment by moment. I've gained a lot of weight during the pandemic and I feel a little hypocritical talking about weight loss. I look around, I see everybody else it has too, so I don't feel so bad. <laughs> We're all fat in our misery, but, but I'm, I'm not going to stress about it. You know, I, that's part of the key, I think, is not stressing about it. But yeah. if there is a key, to weight loss, and, and this is nothing people haven't said a million times. It's fixing your head and your heart first. And then, you know, why am I eating? Why do I need this? Why is mm-hmm. food my, my drug? And because, you know, growing up like super religious, I never drank, I never smoked, never did any drugs, never did any of that. So food was my drug. Yeah. That's how I was medicating myself. Are you still uh, a member of Oh, ODS? God. Still, um, no. <laughs> you were like, no. I I worked on a documentary about three, four years ago with Imagine Dragons, Dan Reynolds, about yeah. the Love Loud and all of that. And so that was my first look into how bad everything is for LGBT youth in the Mormon community. And I was just taken aback. Like I was so shocked by everything and like the people that we were interviewing and doing. You're like, Yeah, people don't wow. realize that like, when you grow up Mormon or when you're a member of the Mormon church, it's not that you just go to church for an hour on Sunday. It's an entire culture that you live in. And all my friends were Mormon. Everything I knew was Mormon. It was, I did religion classes every day at 5.30 in the morning before high school for four years. I did three hours of church every Sunday. And then several nights a week, we were involved in church activities. So it's an all encompassing thing. So when you leave 
that culture, it's incredibly difficult because you're leaving everything you know and everybody you know. And there's a reason that the Mormon youth suicide rates are like five times the national average. You know, here's a church that professes to be like the restored religion of Jesus Christ in its perfection, but we don't like gay people, you know, who has put millions into anti-gay initiatives. And um, it's not okay. And I will always fight against that now. I remember getting, when I resigned from the church, you have to go through this whole process where you officially like resign and getting that letter back saying, okay, you know, and they send you several warning letters first. Do you know what you're doing? It's dire. What you're doing, it's terrible. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the pop-up window. No, it's, it's such a relief. And even then, even after that, I felt kind of sick about it um, just because that's all I ever knew. I have been scouring the little internet and you had some fan questions come in. This is from Oscar. Has the show asked you to come back in any way? Lots of us would love to see you again, whether it's on All Stars or a regular season. Is it still in the cards? And their second question is, I always cringed at the age questions during Drag Race, but I feel it's very important. The average age of contestants keeps dropping with recent seasons. Do you think the show is doing a disservice to the older queens? Okay. Well, I'll start with, <laughs> there. I have, I have a lot to say about all that, Oscar. Thanks for asking. World of Wonder is the company that produces Drag Race, and I've done several little things for them. The only time the show has asked me back was the premiere episode of season 10. They asked a group of us back to like, you know, read the queens on the runway. And I was there for that. And I was honored to be asked for that. But other than that, no. I'm honestly surprised there hasn't been a redemption season because there seems so much interest in it. There was a, after DragCon two years ago in Los Angeles one night, there was a, a pageant competition of all the girls who'd gone home first. I don't, many people don't know about this. And uh, almost all the girls who had, had been eliminated up to that point participated. And um, it was really cool. It was really fun. And I won fan favorite that night. That was redemption for me. It felt so good. And it felt, it was enough for me, at least at the time, to feel like, hey, I, people acknowledge me and see that I, I'm making an effort and I have something to offer. So it, it was great. Michelle Visage hosted it. And it, it was fun. It was fun. So there's that. And the second part was about the age question. You know, the show, I'll, I'll be honest, the show tried to make a huge deal about the age thing on season seven. It wasn't that big a deal to me, but I'll tell you something fun that they edited out was when Candy Ho said, how old are you? I turned to someone next to me. I said, well, I guess we know who the bitch this season is. They didn't show that, but we're friends now, by the way, too. I wear my age like a badge of honor, man. I can, I'm 53 years old and I'm proud. I've earned every fucking minute of it. I just think it's crazy because when you were on the show too, what you were like, I don't consider 53 old at all. I don't consider, what were you, 45, 46, 46 at the time you did it? 46 when we filmed. I'm like, it's not like Lady Bunny walked through the door and was like, hey, little <laughs> kids. And I was like, what? <laughs> no. Well, first of all, I mean, I know I don't look 53, so that's good. But the second thing is, is that good genetics and oil of Olay kids. I drink lots of water. <laughs> it bothers me. To the other part of the question that Oscar asked about the young kids, here's what bothers me is, is you haven't proved anything yet. And mm -hmm. call me old school. And when people call me old school, they do it as an insult. Usually call me queen of old school, tattooed across my chest. Because you know what? We had to work harder. We didn't have RuPaul's Drag Race. And mm -hmm. we have proven ourselves. These 20-year-olds that go on the show have not proven anything yet. And that's a general blanket statement. Right. Some of them are 
absolutely fabulous entertainers and drag queens and artists, but some of them are not. I'll be honest, I didn't, I haven't even watched this last season. I watched the first two episodes and that's all I could get through because it's just changed. It just kept going on. It's just, yeah, right. The show has changed <laughs> a lot. And yeah. I think it's sad they don't have older queens. And I'm sure it's because they think that's not good TV. That's what it comes down to. What makes money and what they think is good TV and ratings. And it's unfortunate. There should be a 40 and over competition show for drag queens. Then you're going to see some stuff. Well, that's the thing, too, that I always find very interesting about reality television. I used to be the biggest fan of Big Brother. I used to watch that when it first came out. And I was I loved the diversity of the cast and age because that's what made the drama. And you saw the different things. And, you know, that's how drag race started a little but then it just ventured off into all right we need a look queen we need a comedy queen we need this queen we need that queen and then by doing that you're taking out a lot of the drama now you're taking out a lot of the different types of drag because now we're just seeing one very similar straight line of drag everybody does the same thing because of what they've seen on drag race yeah i mean i think you're right you know when people ask me all the time young queens who are starting out they say uh, what's your best advice? And I say, don't be Beyonce. We already have Beyonce. Don't mm -hmm. be Madonna. We already have Madonna. Don't be whoever else. Dua Lipa. We already have her. Be you. Bring what you yeah. have to bring. Your life experience, your style, your genre, whatever it is, that's what's most important. You have a voice and it's valid and believe in it or nobody else will. Exactly. And I, I do not know who it was, but somebody told me recently, they were like, you have to be your own self. The time that like, if you walked into the drag race workroom and if you saw that somebody was doing splits and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to do splits for this challenge. And you spend all that time doing those splits. You're not going to be as good as that person doing them. Never. So you need to concentrate on yourself. Yeah. Guess what? All you thousands of girls who are copying Trixie's makeup, she does it better. And we, <laughs> you know what? And we know that she created it. So stop trying to be Trixie. You're not Trixie, you know? And it, it, it goes along with exactly what you were saying. Don't copy someone else. Be you. Bring what you have to offer. And and everyone has a story. Everyone has something to offer as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And you came through the workroom in season seven. And I read on the internet that you actually were going to be on season four. Was that, were you in the running for season four? Well, what it was is, as you know, they <clears throat> the audition process from the time you like send in your application it literally took over three months for me. I don't know if they still take that long, but it's grueling and it's exhausting. And I mean, it goes on and on. And they come to like a final like 20 and they choose their final cast from that group. And at that season, I had made that final group and I was a big girl then. And we knew they were only going to cast one big girl because that's what they do. And the girl they chose that season was Latrice Royale. I'm like, good choice. <laughs> you, made, you made the right choice there. <laughs> so... Yeah, and I love Latrice and um, we're great friends, but yeah. So I was very close at one point. That is so funny. I mean, I honestly could have seen you more in a season four than a season seven. I mean, like that would have been pretty good. That was a good, good lineup. I would have done a lot better, yeah, yeah. You end up in this lovely show and you know, your age thing is penned against you and you come out on the runway for this nudie, nudie patootie, reveal-y thing. And the judges were not having it. They were like, you know, your nude illusion suit was too big. And, you know, they went off on you for that. 
Why do you think that it was too big? First of all, it wasn't. And they were really grasping for excuses. The only place there was a wrinkle in it was at my ankle. And Mm -hmm. if you had seen closely some of the other girls' outfits, even today, let's line them up and I'll show you. I mean, we want to talk about fit. Mine was, everybody else's, by the way, was bought off the internet too. I'm the only one who made my own suit. Sasha Bella had like a black leotard on hers. I mean, it was like, you know what I mean? They're going to come up with an excuse for whatever they want. There was this entire list of things we could not do with a nude suit, like like add sparkle or add this or do this. So I was very strictly abiding by the rules. And that wrinkle, I mean, if you're going to send me because there's a wrinkle in my stocking at the ankle, I mean, you're really grasping for something. And yeah. and so it is what it is. I knew what I was signing up for. I'm forever grateful that I was cast on the show. I don't think I got a fair shot, no. And I tell people all the time, it's like, you save up your whole life to go to Disneyland. And when you get there, they lock the gate. And I've used that comparison before, but I mean, I'm not the only one who's been to counseling to to deal with what happened to Drag Race. Mm-hmm. It's devastating. I mean, it's devastating and, and financially devastating. You know, it took me years to pay off my debt. Uh, for a closet full of clothes I've still never worn for all the challenges on Drag Race. It's a big thing. So know what you're signing up for. And I know, and that's why I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I certainly wasn't expecting to go first, but I also know that there is so much hypocrisy in the judging <laughs> drag race. It's insane. Someone should do a whole reel of it because like what's great one week is terrible the next week. So it's, you know, they had to come up with reasons. Exactly. I, that's what I always mm-hmm. say. I'm like, okay, last week you got mad at this person for their shoes because they were not this color and now they're wearing, it's just like everything, you, there's always a picking and there's always a pushing and a pronging. You know what You know, what I gotta say to the young kids too, like and anyone who's thinking about going on RuPaul's Drag Race, first of all, it will propel your career. It, it is an amazing opportunity, but never ever forget that this is RuPaul's Drag Race. This is RuPaul's opinion. Everybody has an opinion. RuPaul has a great opinion but so does everyone else. Her opinion does not define you. No judge on that show defines you in any way. And it breaks my heart to see people feel defined by what Rue said to them on camera. And when Rue is a flawed human being, just like the rest of us, she's accomplished a lot. I love what she's done for us culturally, but her opinion is just her opinion. It doesn't define me, you know? That's honestly like so amazing to hear you say, because I do think that there are a lot of girls who go in and they view Rue's opinion as the only opinion. And they view that as like the standard of drag, but it's not. You have so much drag that goes back years and years. And it's like, there are so many different forms. Like I I find it, I found it so interesting, like in the UK version, when Rue saw one of the girls and she had like armpit hair and chest hair. And then it was like that freak out moment of like, oh, I don't like that. And then it's like- When Rue made that H&M comment, it broke my heart. It pissed me off. And then it broke my heart because- not everyone, you know, Rue looks the way she does because she has millions of dollars in her bank account and someone does her hair, someone does her makeup, someone does her clothes, someone writes her funny lines, someone carries her shit. You know what I mean? It, that's why she looks the way she does and sounds the way she does. She yeah. didn't always. Go back and look up what Rue looked like before. You know what I'm saying? Project Runway, that, yeah. uh, Weakest Link. That's not, and that's not, <laughs> yeah, her talk show. That's not a slam. That's just, that's reality. That's truth. And I still do my own hair and makeup and clothes and choreography and everything. And I don't see some people doing that. 
So <laughs> Yeah. To that point, I thought it was hilarious. I've watched the first episode of Australia down under and Raven wasn't there in time to do his makeup. So he was not in makeup yeah. and dress and everything on the main stage. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like it's that big. You probably haven't touched a palette in forever for yourself. Even, you know, the eliminations when they do the lip sync for your life. I tell people too, look, my elimination would have been very different if this was give a girl a mic for your life, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of what I do is interaction on the mic and comedy and that sort of things. Dancing is not the only thing that defines a drag queen. A lot of us do a lot of other things that just happens to be what Rue likes to see or do. So yeah. don't define yourself. I knew right away that I could never outdance Candy Ho. She's a dancer. I'm not a dancer. So leave it at that. You were like, ah, oh, I'm in the bottom two. You already get, you probably already had that mindset too. Like you said, you're not a dancer. You're lip syncing for your life. Mm -hmm. What and did by you the feel way, in that the moment? The hardest song that has ever on any season been a lip sync for your life song. And I challenge anyone. Geronimo, Geronimo. There are 40,000 words in that song and we had a night to learn it. And I, I challenge anyone to think there was ever been a harder song. So I'll pat myself on the back for even knowing the lyrics, but it is what it is. I knew what I was signing up for. So boo-hoo me, you know? What did you feel in that moment of lip syncing? Is that like, is that a scary thing? Like what goes through your mind when that happens? It's so surreal. And I'll, I'll be honest, my, my honest recollection of that was, and this is going to sound like I'm trying to garner sympathy, but I was in so much pain because I still have pain 24 seven in my, my car accident. My, I mean, literally my leg was ripped off my body. And so I have to take pain pills every day, all day, just to manage the pain. It's chronic pain. And we had been in heels for, you know, 12, 14 hours. And I was dying. I mean, I was in so much pain at that point. I mean, look at myself on the screen. I'm like, my face is just dead. It's because I'm in so much pain. I'm like, please just let me not fall over and get through this song. That's all I was thinking, to be honest. Do you think that you going home first hurt you or helped you career-wise? I think it's, in my season, it was better than going home second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, eighth, or ninth. I'm incredibly grateful for whatever happened with me. I've been told many times by many different people at World of Wonder and other queens, that I sort of broke this curse of the first to go home. And I honor that and I respect that and I'm grateful for it. And for whatever way people connected with me, I, I appreciate it and I love it. And that's all I could ever ask for. So I think, I don't believe in like fate necessarily, like this is your destiny. But I believe that that worked out really well for me. Plus, the editors were very kind to me. They can make you look like a real bitch or they can make you look like Mother Teresa. And they made me look really good. And of course, I always say when people complain about the editing, I say, well, if you didn't say it, they wouldn't have it to edit in, you know, so watch your mouth. But yeah, anyway, you know, but I'm happy with it. I, I'm regretful and sorry yeah. that people didn't get to see more of me. I mean, I mean, like the next challenge was like a Shakespeare challenge. I mean, that's my life. I mean, I do Shakespeare for a living and Tempest is from the Tempest, mm -hmm. Shakespeare. So that kind of broke my heart. Yeah. But then I loved hearing Ruth say it was the worst thing she'd ever seen on the show in all seasons. I was like, yeah, not my fault, not my fault. <laughs> yeah, she was like, nope. You talked about, you know, having all those outfits and spending so much money. And I recently talked to Juicebox from Canada and she said she ended up spending almost 20 grand for her time on the show. And I know that as this show keeps going on, these outfits are getting more and more elaborate. 
And you start losing, I mean, this is my opinion, but I believe you start losing the person too, because you're just wearing a garment. You're not wearing a vision. You know, the last two seasons, especially this last season, I felt like it was so much about the clothes. And clearly, none of these girls are making their own clothes. I mean, they're just not. And on the one hand, it looks great, but to me, it's missing the whole point. Like, I hate that, you know, back in my season, even, we, we were making our own stuff and we were scrounging. I spent a good, I mean, it was over, between, between 10 and 20 grand, you know, to get all my shit together too. And it, it bugs me because you're right. It, it's becoming less and less about the people and the art of drag to me and more about who it's it's about mugging for camera yeah time. and what what i always say too is i feel like the first like probably the first eight eight nine seasons i knew who these girls were i knew like their personality yeah. and their drive and now when we're getting to top threes or fours i'm like i don't know this person's backstory what are like who are they i i don't know their scene i just know that they may wear a cute outfit that has a reveal but like i don't yeah. know them yeah you're exactly right i mean i think that was the appeal of the early seasons was that I saw myself a bit of me in everyone, even the extreme characters, you know, and the, the Sharon Needles and the Willems and the, who I adore. I mean, I love all of them, but even when, it, you know, back then you, you hated them and loved them at the same time. And now I just hate a lot of them. <laughs> Not really, I'm kidding. I feel like you're right. That personal part's gone for some reason. And I think it's because mm -hmm. it's so like glossy now. It's so, yeah. all the hair is perfect and all the makeup's perfect and all that. Clothes are perfect and yeah, it's it's too it comes a little too perfect out like as this has <laughs> gone on. You you touched briefly earlier about, you know, having to seek counseling and stuff after the show. What do you think it was? Because I, I know a lot of girls who end up having, you know, mental health things and they do end up seeking therapy and they do this. And a lot of girls are like, the show needs to provide it because it just like is this thing after and it keeps growing and growing what were the issues that you ended up having from the show that you felt that you needed to like make sure that you're good with what's you know what's funny is probably most people don't know this but the state of california requires a mental health examination before you can appear on reality tv so we all had to pass that and see a counselor before we were on the show and then they leave you high and dry and i agree that it, it's it's devastating and for me it was i've had a very charmed life and sure, I've had struggles and bad things, but I've always worked really hard and achieved my goals. And this was my first big professional like failure. And so that on a personal level was really devastating. And then you have all this devastation of, oh my God, I like my kids are going to be teased for this, or I'm, you know, I'm going to go back to school and all my students are going to like think, oh, you know, he's terrible. They only made it one episode. And it, it was all this fear of like what people were going to think of me. And it was just a fear of also feeling like, like it just wasn't fair. Even though I knew what I was signing up for, I felt like it's devastating to me that I didn't get a chance to show what I could do. And if, if I had gotten that chance and been kicked off, it would have been a different thing for me completely. But they never saw what I could, what I was capable of ever. We did a runway and then I was gone. And I, and they cast me as a specific type of queen, but they never let me. Yeah you know, show that. Explore yeah. that reign, yeah. And be able to show that off. And that's what I always, that's why I always find that like the first out girls, it's like, I wanted to see more of you because you're not gonna be able to, in a real fair situation, if somebody's a comedy queen and they're going home on a challenge that's nothing to do with comedy, you didn't see the best of them. You may have seen the best of somebody else because they had 
the most fabulous outfit by a designer they right. paid for. You, you're not seeing the queens to the fullest level. What do you think the viewers in America didn't see of Tempest? Well, I think, you know, my my whole reason and love of drag is based on like that communal experience. Like you're in the dark in a bar or a club or a theater or whatever. And it's that it's, I guess it's my theater background, but I, to me, it's like the theater is a magic place for me. Magical things happen there. And I know I sound corny and like dad, but, and or hippy dippy, but it's true. It's like, it's, I had a professor at Brigham Young University who used to call the theater. He said, the theater is a temple, it's a sacred place. And I get his religious perspective, but for me, it is almost that. Like I still get chills when I just walk into theaters because it's where I felt safe. It's where I didn't have to hide you know, Augustine Maupin talks about like your biological family and your logical family. My logical family was the theater people. They accepted me for who I was. They loved me for that. And that's why I love doing drag is because it's that interaction. Lip syncing is fun. I do live singing and comedy and, and just, I do a game show I've been doing for over eight years. And it's all that interaction with people. People want to be acknowledged and people want to be, they want to feel like they're special and they want to have interaction. And to me, that's the joy of the art. It's not, that's not taking away from anything of anybody else. If you're a Beyonce impersonator and that's what you do and you do it well, I say, you do it, girl, do it. But there's so many valid genres and forms of drag. Even in my academic career, I still fight for, for my colleagues to acknowledge drag as an art. You know, it's like, oh, boys put on dresses and they're funny. But it's an art form. And I teach, you know, I do a whole cabaret yeah. show on just the history of drag and people, always are like, I had no idea. Now this, because this show is called Dragged Out and you know, it's an exposed show, I would like for you to expose something that happened while shooting that no one knows about. It could be something funny, a behind scenes moment, a heartfelt thing. Like, was there a moment that happened that you wish the cameras would have saw or you wish that, you know, that really had like a impact on you? Uh, yeah, this is easy. There was a moment in my season and it actually happened after I went home, but it's on my season. This was the episode of uh, Snatch Game and uh, Rue was going around table to table talking to everybody. And at that point, it was like, I think Miss Fame and mm -hmm. Violet were going to do the same character. Either Violet or Fame or somebody said they would let the other girl do it, whatever. And Rue's like, why did you do that? And she says, well, I was just trying to be nice. And Rue says, and you can go back and look at the tape. Rue says, it's one thing to be nice. It's another thing to win. And I was like, stab me through the heart and twist the knife. That's what this show is all about. And now I get it. And if I ever go back to this show again, now I know the secret. And that's not to put down Rue or anybody else, but that's a comment on Hollywood and how TV works and how success works in business as well. Sometimes you step on people's necks and heads to get to where you need to be. And I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I mean, it's wrong. But, mm -hmm. but a lot of people do it and that's how they get their success. And to hear Rue say that, you know, when Pearl came out with her experience with Rue as well about the cameras rolling, I immediately contacted Pearl and I saw your interview with Pearl was amazing. And I reached out to Pearl right away. I was like, I mean, and I love Pearl to death. Pearl was like, I mean, they were all like mm -hmm. little sisters and brothers to me, you know, it was cool. But I, I love Pearl. And, um, and I said, Pearl, I 100% I, I get where you're coming from. That's the feeling I left with too. And I wish I didn't have that feeling. I wish I'd never heard Rue say that about it's one yeah. thing to be nice. It's another thing to win because I went on the show and maybe this is why I got eliminated so fast. And I was determined to be authentic and not put a show on for the camera. And I can't tell you how many times the producers 
came up to me and said, you know, Candy Ho really made a deal about your age and Candy Ho this and Candy Ho. They were trying to make a story. Even at the finale so, taping yeah. of our show, they pulled me aside and said, you know, when you go out there, Candy said some really bad things about you. I'm like, that's not me. Yeah. And maybe it's going to, you know, leave me in a bad place as far as the ratings go or whatever. But, you know, I have a bigger perspective. I have children, I have friends, I have family, and I have um, integrity. So I didn't, I didn't buy into that. Yeah. And I, I think that you, you brought up the Pearl thing and it's just like, Pearl is just such a real person from what I have experienced. And I feel like a lot of times, like you can feed into the drama, you can feed into all of that for being on television, but are you losing a sense of yourself? Are you losing a sense of your identity? Like, you know, are you, like you said, when you heard Rue say that you're like, well, oh crap. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like I was going as myself and now it's like, did you come here for one thing or the other? And when you don't stray away from yourself, I think that is when you know you did something right. Drag race doesn't last forever, but my life does mm -hmm. and my integrity does and what people say about me and think about me. So maybe I was just old enough and mature enough to, to understand a bigger perspective. I don't know. For as much has been written about what a shitty season seven was, I mean, you've got Pearl, you've got Ginger, you've got Trixie, you've got Katya, you've got Violet. You've, I mean, We've done yeah. pretty well. Yeah. Even I worked, I've worked a lot more than a lot of girls in a lot of seasons that didn't go home first. What do you think that the most positive experience and the most negative experience to come from your run on the show? Negative, I'll start with that. Negative is certainly, was certainly the depression afterwards and the feeling of just complete devastation. Yeah, and, and I've said this publicly, so it's no surprise that like, I was eliminated from the show and the next day we had to go back and do all the season seven promos, all the pictures, Stop. all the promo videos, all the everything. So I'd already been eliminated. So I'm having to put a smile on my face and it was devastating. That is hard. It sucked so bad knowing that, you know, I'm already gone. So what's my motivation yeah. here, you know? And they were still very kind to me. They featured me in the ads, you know, for the new season and stuff. But that's just, I think, to throw people off. The best part, hands down, Joseph, by far, hands down, I'll sum up in this story. DragCon New York, the first time we ever did it, we're waiting, in, I'm in my little booth, and I'm waiting, you know, people are in line to come say hi, take pictures, whatever. And I'm seeing this little kid, and this little 15-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy, walks up and he says, I drove hours through the night to come see you. And I said, oh. That's like remarkable and thank you. And I appreciate it. And he goes, I want you to know something that he said, I was very depressed and I was going to kill myself. And he said, before I killed myself, I decided I would write to my favorite Queens from drag race. And he says, you're the only one who wrote me back. And that's why I'm here. And I just said, I mean, it's just gonna make me cry now thinking about it. And I'm like, that's the whole reason. I mean, if there's mm -hmm. nothing else, but this kid, then it's all worth it all the pain, all the heartbreak, everything. And I get messages still every week, multiple messages from kids and grownups all over the world who are being rejected by their families or who feel fat and ugly or who are, are having some kind of problem. And for some reason, they look to me and I take that really seriously. And I answer all of them. And because I think of myself as a kid growing up, if one person had said something to me to acknowledge me and to tell me I'm okay, it would have changed my entire life. But I never had that. So if I can yeah. be that for someone, then that's my purpose for doing Drag Race. And that is such a good purpose. Like I actually, I, I love that that was your positive thing because you know, 
you do, you have your fans and you have people and you're helping people. Like you, you were on a television show that is showing inclusivity of a culture that for the longest time hasn't been shown. And I think one thing that I always, <laughs> it's not necessarily arguments, but I always get into it with my boyfriend about how he's always like, oh, things like it's getting like, you know, things are getting better. Like he's been in California his whole life. So that's what he knows. And I'm like, no, I grew up in Tennessee. It is not getting better. And I was like, it's just like being able to relate to somebody. And if I was in Tennessee at the time and if drag waste was around then and I saw somebody that was like me and not the stereotypical Hollywood gay that they put on everything and like I could relate to somebody, then that is everything. Yeah. I mean, I think when drag in the first two seasons of Drag Race, I I was one of those fans that wrote to some of my favorite queens on social media, never heard a word back from anybody. And that's not to put them down. They, you know, I don't know if they ever got the message or not, but I, it's so much bigger than hair and makeup and the best outfit. Yeah. It's It can be so much bigger. And I know that a lot of other queens have had these experiences too, but I also know that I I was painted as a mother hen figure, and I'm so happy to take that on. If that's who I need to be, I'm so happy in that role. I I'm so glad that you know you do that, and I'm so glad that you're very interactive with your fans and you just respond back. I, you know, was talking to another girl in your seat. I was talking to uh, Kennedy Davenport recently, and she was like, "My fans are everything." And she goes, "At the end of the day, she goes, what is it going to hurt if I'm sitting on the toilet and liking people's messages and saying thank you and just." appreciating them. She was like, it takes nothing. Just put yourself away for a little bit, go to it a few times a day, whatever. And she's like, but it can make somebody's day. Kennedy, Jasmine, all the, there's so many girls have a heart of gold and people don't, you know, Kennedy has a very hard exterior for some people. And even for me at first, but I, I mean, she has been so kind and so lovely and she's right. In many ways, you're a character from TV. So you're only as good as your fans make you to be in a way, you know, I don't mean that personally, but I mean that in a sort of surface way, but she's right about, it doesn't take but a second to like, like a message or, you know, every time I get a message, someone's like, I can't believe you responded or they can't believe, you know, and I'm floors me that people are that interested, but I take it seriously. It's a responsibility. Well, as we close all this out, I do want to know what is up with you this year. Is there anything that people should be paying attention to? Are you starting to get back in the performing scene? Like, are things opening up? What's what's going down the hill? Yeah, you know, it's tough. It's really tough. And, you know, I'm in a very sort of fortunate position because I have a career outside of drag and it pays my bills and my health insurance and all that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm, I feel really grateful and lucky for that. And it breaks my heart that so many performers, not just drag performers, but performers in general are suffering and have had a hard time. And, and I feel lucky. I've really focused a lot on my home and my kids in the last year because they, you know, kids have it rough too when they're home and they don't get to see their friends at all. And yeah. it's a tough time, but, but I still, you know, we're starting things here in Arizona are opening up. So, you know, we're watching week by week what the latest recommendation and standard is, but we've gotten back into some live local performances thank God. And I think nationally, some things are going to start opening up more. So hopefully for me and for everybody else, we'll be back to live performance. I mean, please go and support these girls. And if anyone you know is interested, there are so many amazing local drag performers that will never yes. be on Drag Race, that don't want to be on Drag Race or do, but you'll never see on the show that you should support. I mean, they, you know, support everybody if you can, yeah. if you have a love for it. 
Well, thank you so much for being here, Tempest. And thank you guys for listening to this episode of Dragged Out. We have new shows every week. Make sure to subscribe to the show and you can rate and review it in your favorite podcast app. And be sure to email me at draggedoutpod at gmail.com and I might read it on the next show. Be sure to follow me at Joseph A. Shepard. And Tempest, where are you located at on your socials? I quit Twitter a couple years ago because it just got too ugly and mean. But Instagram, I'm on Instagram, Tempest Jour, just one word. That's probably the easiest way. Or Jour at Gmail. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in, listening. I'm Joseph Shepard, your host. You can find me on all things social at Joseph A. Shepard. That's S H E P. H-E-R-D. If you like this show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also email me at draggedoutpod at gmail.com and your questions may be featured on the next episode. You can also go to thedip.com slash RuPaul's Drag Race to read the full interview, including some scalding hot tea that was not even in this podcast episode. Use promo code EXPOSE for 50% off your membership. That's the dip with two Ps.com. Promo code EXPOSE. And be sure to check out other podcasts from the dip, including Hot Off the Mess with Samantha Bush, their daily pop culture podcast, Pop Chaser, their TV history podcast, TV Watch Repeat, Real Housewives podcast, The Slut Pig podcast, and their newest show, I Am the Cute One, a Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen podcast. Show them what you're all about. You're